Welcome to the Constructing a Business podcast produced by the CMC Network. At CMC, we help women and minority-owned businesses overcome the challenges they face every day by offering networking opportunities, incremental business development, and construction-focused business coaching. I'm your host. I'm Michael Obuther with Supporting Strategies. We are an outsourced virtual bookkeeping con controller team right here in New York City. We help construction leaders build profit. Today on the podcast, we have Lorraine D'Angelo. She is the president of LDA Compliance Consulting, Inc. Lorraine is a dynamic leader in the ethics and compliance field. She is particularly skilled with respect to small minority women-owned businesses participating on government-funded projects. Her background includes 21 years as a construction lawyer, excuse me, litigator, and she has been a senior ethics leader at several global companies responsible for large public works projects involving mass transit, bridge, and highway construction. Her work here at CMC is to help you understand the rules and regulations that affect your business so you can avoid fines and other challenges that can set you back years in your growing business. Lorraine, it is a delight to have you here with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> so... In preparation for this, I did reach out to Viv to make sure that I was asking questions that were going to be very relevant to our membership here at CNC, which are generally smaller businesses. I did some research into your background and what you do, and it's really incredible what you've done. And Viv helped me understand what that background is and how important it is to our people. Um, and I know I just said that you're here to help them understand the rules and regulations. But what I'd like to ask you, and I'm breaking with tradition because I have a question I typically ask everybody as a, as a starter, but I'm changing it up. <laughs> <laughs> but with smaller companies, where, how, when do they come to you? Like what is the catalyst that makes them say, I need some help with... Uh, compliance and regulations? So that's a really interesting question because typically the firms get to me when it's too late. I like to say that my business is about you don't know what you don't know, you know, so it's always good to have that person in your corner. Like, you know, with your business, it's good to make sure your books and your accounts are all kept up to date. A small construction business should always have access to a lawyer. They should have access to... Um, other professionals to help them, the same with a compliance professional. They should um, consult with one to determine what their contractual requirements are because, again, you don't know what you don't know. So some things that people, smaller businesses, may not be all that familiar with when they get, um, when they're doing contracting, whether it's public or private contracting, would be like, what are all the wage and hour law requirements that we have to abide by? Or, um, I have this clause in my contract that says I have to comply with Executive Order 11246. What does that mean? <laughs> right? So, things like yeah. that. So, you know, everyone says, oh, that's just the 16 steps of affirmative action and e EEO. Well, it may just be that. But the government just sent out notices to 400 major construction companies about audits that they're going to be doing 
on their and their subcontractors compliance with the EEO and affirmative action. So, you know, smaller businesses generally get um, all their clauses flowed down from the pr prime contract. So you need to be familiar with what those requirements are. And it starts with reading your contract. Uh, but I can help explain to the smaller businesses what some of those requirements are and help them prioritize which ones they really need to pay attention to first. Which ones are going to get them in the most trouble? Okay, so uh, sort of a punch list or a triage of compliance concerns. So you brought up that a lot of these a lot of the things that our members should be concerned with are in the contract. We do have a mm -hmm. uh, an excellent contract attorney as a member of the network. Do you work alongside a, a contract attorney or do you replace a contract attorney? No, I, I like to say I'm a recovering lawyer. So I <laughs> stopped litigating after 21 years. And I went in-house, I use my legal background now to interpret regulations and to make them into plain language so that a contractor can understand what they need to do. Because, you know, you I'm sure you've read through a contract, everyone's read through a contract, and sometimes it's in all this legalese. Well, what part of what I do is break it down so people understand it. But your lawyer, when your lawyer is... Re I don't do the contract reviews, but when your lawyer reviews the contract, he's going to be focused on things like, well, what do, you, what do, uh, what's the schedule? What's the indemnification clauses? What are the, um, how do I make a, a claim? How do I know if something's a change order or extra work? They're going to be focused on those kinds of requirements to make sure that they preserve the, your claim down the road if you have to make a claim against your owner or the uh, person that you entered your contract with. My role is more to explain some of the things that you don't necessarily focus on in the contract. So for instance, if a small business is a minority or women business enterprise, right? To make sure and give them advice that they're actually operating within the constraints of the program that they're operating under. So in the city of New York, the city of New York has its own program. The New York City School Construction Authority has additional requirements that they put on that program. The state of New York has its own program. The um, USDOT projects have its own DBE program. The Port Authority has a small business program. They all pretty much have similar requirements regarding eligibility and performance but they're little tweaks that make a big difference. So for instance, under the MTA's uh, Minority and Women program, if it's a state-funded program, um, you get to, um, they, will, they will count suppliers up to 25% for a broker credit. But if you're operating in the DBE program, it's limited to something much less than that, to fees and commissions. So knowing those little differences between the programs really um, can keep someone out of trouble because in every contract, you usually swear to the owner that everything that you've done is in full accord and, and um, 
and, and meets the requirements of the project plans, documents, and specifications. So you have, um, so you're swearing to that, and there's laws, and we don't need to get into them now because that's a whole nother podcast in and of itself. But there are false claims, act claims, and false statements, and you, there are criminal liability attached to that, and civil liability, and you never want to be on that end of the, you never want to be on that end of a subpoena from the Manhattan District Attorney or from the Department of Justice. You just don't. So it's better. My motto is promoting principal performance in construction. You want to know what you're. You want to know what. Um, what you need to do before and and be proactive in this area it it helps yeah that sounds incredibly complicated right I, I know you said that there are a lot of similarities but that is always the challenge right so i have a a little bit of a background in an industry that is it's associated with human resources and labor law mm -hmm. and what a tricky little system that is as you add employees and then maybe you have employees in New York and New Jersey and you have at least two different sets of laws you have to comply with and it quickly escalates and becomes complex. And this sounds no different. And it also sounds like there's no, <laughs> there's no room for the contractor or the tradesperson or the construction team to say, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I didn't comply. I'll do better next time. At that point, when you're already you have that letter from the city or the program, you're already in trouble, right? There's no going back. Well, certainly, when you get it from the um, regulators or the prosecutors, there's no going back. And then, uh, you know, they come in with a view that the construction industry. I don't know if it's because of. Uh, movies like The Godfather or shows like The Sopranos that all have a uh, bad, we get a bad rap in the construction industry. So um, you're already on the back end of it when you start to try to explain what you did. So you're better off, again, knowing what you're supposed to be doing, proactively doing it, and it's much easier to explain a mistake down the line that way. Yeah. So let's talk about some mistakes that people make, you know, in in preparation for this conversation. I did talk to Vivian and she brought up some some I mean, I've definitely heard these terms before kickbacks, gifts, fraud. Like, let's talk. Let's talk kickbacks for a minute, because I, I had a really interesting experience when I first moved to New York City where someone tried to give me cash as thanks for a referral. And I was like, no, no, I don't, this is weird. I don't take money this way. I just want you to do a great job <laughs> for my friend who needs your help. <laughs> um, it seemed like a kickback. I wasn't, I just, you know, thanked them and, and we parted ways. So let's talk about fraud and kickbacks. How prevalent is that? What constitutes a kickback? You know, if, if we go to, I go to a lot of lunches, I do a lot of networking, you know, and I, I went to lunch yesterday with three other people. We split the bill. But if I paid, is that a kickback to them somehow? Like, where, where do we draw it the line? Be. It could be. It could be. Uh, who knows where you draw the line? I mean, there is a legal definition of what a kickback is. Um, there are federal laws against it. There's a federal anti-kickback statute that is actually incorporated into some of the MTA 
uh, contract documents, so you have to comply with the federal law, which makes you responsible for yourself, as well as your subcontractors. It has things like notice you have to give, but in your example, um, you really bring up the whole thing and you get to the heart of the matter because it's when, whenever I do an ethics and compliance training and tell people about these various regulations, try to relate it to the construction industry, all they want to know is can they continue to go out and play golf with the guys. That's what they want to know. So, so basically, um, it's like nothing is ever simple. Nothing is ever simple. But you, you deal with the whole idea of gifts, gratuities, business entertainment, business development, and what's the motive behind why you're giving somebody. Is it actually like, we heard a lot about quid pro quo over the last thing. Are you giving it because there's an expectation of getting something in return, right? So are you giving, um, and it could take a lot of forms. It's like we can talk about kickbacks for probably more than an hour, but it can take a lot of forms. Like there was this one case where um, a contractor actually brought the case against the uh, federal government, and it was under the federal government laws, contracting laws, and in they brought it for contract balance and claims, change order claims that they had. They had $53 million worth of claims. And in that case, during discovery, they found that uh, a bill was paid to their surety company. Uh, and the surety company, because the contractor was such a good client, gave them a 15% discount. Well, the government um, never was, the contractor never passed along that uh, discount to the government. So that 15% discount that they give was considered a kickback. Right? So it's something that you wouldn't, everyone thinks about cash, you know, an exchange of cash as being a kickback. And that absolutely could be. It could be, you know, getting uh, work on your house done for less than market value and then turning around and giving uh, that contractor a subcontract on one of your projects. You know, that could be considered to be a kickback. So it really has a lot of different examples. And when you're doing business entertainment, you have to be careful. So not only are there federal laws, state laws, but when you're doing work with both public and private companies now, many of them have their own internal policies that prohibit things being given and received between mm -hmm. the people who are the decision makers or in charge of giving the um, contracts out and those in charge of doing the work. Um, there were, uh, uh, so they have their own internal conflict of interest policies that also say what you can and can't do and who you can and can't do it with, right? So, um, and they try to get around some of these laws. Like for instance, the, um, well, the Port Authority has a very specific uh, vendor code of ethics and so does the MTA and they prohibit uh, people from giving gifts to their relatives, their grandparents, their relatives, because they don't want you being able to get around their conflict of interest policy, which says you can't exchange it directly as an employee, but they don't want you to be able to um, circumvent it by giving it to your grandmother, right? Who then is gonna give it to yeah. you? <clears throat> so, 
you know, you, you have those, those policies. And um, in New York, there was just a whole set of cases that came down about what's considered to be commercial bribery, which is closely related to kickbacks. It's kind of the same thing, but with, um, um, with Bloomberg, when he was building out his, his companies, uh, premises in the city. So there was just a whole, hit the whole interior division because they were improperly claiming allowances and um, engaging in some other business that the government considered to be commercial bribery. So uh, as a result of that, a lot of uh, large construction companies changed their internal policies that say zero tolerance for gift giving to and from um, the contractor and those that they're doing business with to try to nip that in the bud. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is an interesting challenge. So I'm, as you're speaking and I'm listening to what you say, like in my business development world, we do a lot of networking. I was at an event last night with some people that I've been networking with for a couple of years. We get together once a month and they kind of become your friends in a way, right? You get to know them, you build strong relationships. Yes, they're, they're business partners and we refer our clients to them and they refer clients to us. We develop trust and we know what to expect from them, right? If we make that referral. And one of the topics that Vivian asked me to ask you about is using your friends on contracts. And I'm, now I recognize I'm not a municipality. I'm not, these aren't billion dollar contracts that I'm handing out, you know, these are, and that may not matter. But, I mean, someone, David, hosted us on his rooftop on his, at his apartment, beautiful. He bought wine and beer and cheese and meats, and it was great. And, and <laughs> Lauren, where was about my it, invitation? <laughs> well, I'll get you, yeah, we'll get you invited. Uh, <laughs> it was a beautiful night. And, you know, what I, now, because I, there is a level of appropriate, Ness, I guess, in normal business, but it is different when you're working with government agencies, with municipalities. There are these are these are rules that exist because these are huge contracts, right? I mean, it's not you know a few hundred dollars to help someone with a, you know to re rewrite some copy for their email, right? right. Is, is that is that why these rules exist in your environment? Because like before we started recording, you told me about a massive tunnel that you helped, well, your company drilled somewhere. I'm sure that was well, my hundreds of millions company. of dollars. That, that was <laughs> a that? billion dollar project. Yeah, a billion dollar project. So that matters, right? You get that drilling contract, so, that means so, something. So basically <laughs> you're asking me where do all these requirements flow from? And the answer to that question right. is, is that um, in government contracting, the government is funding the project, right? So basically it's um, he who has the gold gets to make the rules. So the government mm -hmm. has the money, so they give it to you. You have to abide by, by their rules. And what they want, what they need to do as, um, as, uh, as uh, now I'm, I'm losing my word, but taxpayer dollars are being spent, they need to make sure that those taxpayer dollars are being spent uh, prudently and in accordance, you know, that, that there's no grift, there's no nothing 
being done incorrectly on the project. And they have an obligation to make sure that uh, contractors working on their contracts are responsible entities, that they've not been engaged in the kind of fraud or misconduct that would call into question um, the, either the government agencies or, or the contractor's ability to do the work prudently and, and, and in a fiscal responsible manner. You know, so, I mean, that's where it flows from on government contracts. And then when you're dealing with private clients, you may be dealing with boards of directors and shareholders and you have the same kind of those fiduciary obligations and duties to them as well. Got it. So, but, but the whole the whole way that the whole ethics and compliance industry started. So you know the topics that ethics and compliance deal with. It's like what's your organizational culture. I mean, all the things we've been talking about before all have to do with compliance. That's that means or did you do what you're supposed to do in accordance with a policy or regulation, right? But ethics and compliance programs are more than that. They talk about your your organizational culture. And um, so, so it's more. It's the ethics part plus the compliance piece to it. And this all, the compliance program started back in the 1990s um, when the defense industry was engaging with contractors and somebody audited and reviewed the books and they found that the government was paying $600 for a toilet seat. So obviously that wasn't a prudent um, use of the taxpayer's money so that they decided, well, now we're gonna put these rules in place to make contractors make sure that there's no fraud, waste, or abuse on any of their projects. So that's where it started. And then the over the years, the Department of Justice has created a set of rules about their expectations surrounding ethics and compliance programs. And, and they've been evolving a great deal recently, but um, the, the pieces of it all have to do with, does your organizational culture promote uh, compliance with the law? Do you have a good culture in your organization? And the why you should do it is because at the end of the day, there are studies showing that you're like almost a third more profitable than companies that don't pay attention to ethics and compliance because you get to retain your employees longer, um, you get a better reputation in your marketplace, you you know you don't have to pay fines and penalties to the government. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. So that was my next question was was what is the competitive advantage or is there a competitive advantage to having a strong compliance practice in your business but i'll i do have a question related to it is there you know in the rfps that come out is there a place to say we work with lorraine as our compliance consultant to ensure that we can you know, navigate these these rules. I don't know. I, you know, how is there a competitive advantage to working with a better compliance consultant? Um, there could be. It really depends upon the contract that you're working on. Um, there may be a competitive advantage. So, for instance, if you're doing work on New York City Housing Authority project or an HPD project that has prevailing wage requirements 
there may be an advantage to hiring someone to do some kind of spot checking and monitoring or reviewing of whether or not you, uh, you, you are or your subcontractors are paying prevailing wages and then to interview employees because that's a, a area of concern in New York City and New York State as well. <clears throat> so that's an example where it could be a competitive advantage. It's not specified in the contract. It doesn't say hire Lorraine. I wished it did, but it doesn't. Um, but, but some of them now, some of the larger projects like the Javits Center and the Moynihan, they do have state, um, um, the IG, the inspector generals are out there on the project and they come out and they check on all of these things. So even if it's not a item that you can get paid for in your contract, it might be an item that you want to include. I got it. Well, I mean, it's, it's surety to the, oh, the people running the project overall to see Oh, these people are taking it seriously because it's even if it happens to you, it still affects their. It could affect their reputation because it's a, it's a mark on the project. Correct, correct. I mean, right. it's and that's like, going to stick with you the next time there's a project, and you're wondering why? Huh? I wonder why I didn't get this bid. Well, so what is the typical practice now? Is that where? where the government has come in and there, there's these task forces that they've created that are composed of like inspector generals, IRS agents, internal um, reviewers, prosecutors, they all get together and talk and they talk about the contractors and they talk about what's going on and they share information. And when you get in trouble on one contract then they start looking at your other contracts. Um, but <clears throat> there also, if you get in trouble, if you get into, you know, trouble and you can't, um, it wasn't a mistake and you did some, whatever it was, and you accept responsibility for it, <clears throat> sometimes the government requires you to hire an outside person to assure the government that you are taking all your compliance requirements seriously. So that's usually called an integrity monitor. And I've acted in that capacity, too, as well, for um, uh, looking over and making sure that contractors on government contracts are, are doing, uh, that there's no violation of law or no fraud, waste, and abuse on those contracts. Um, <clears throat> and they will ha make you hire that person. You have to pay that person. And uh, that per the, the integrity monitor gets to report back to the government without you, without you being in the middle of it. So you're paying for something that you really have no control over. So being up front on the front end, that's where you want to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Paying for my own disciplinarian sounds terrible. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Even though terrible. I'm a lovely one, but I mean, I'm sure these yeah, but people that's not your, your role is not, you're a teacher, right? So you're showing and you're teaching. Right. And that gives people a chance to improve their process. Right. But in the in the um, the purview of this taskmaster who's reporting back to the government on your behalf, um, not on your behalf, but about you, uh, that sounds like a terrible waste of money and an unfortunate place to be. Very expensive. So as we as we wrap this up, I, I wanna make sure 
you know, just for the CMC membership, is there anything they should know at a at a basic level today? You know, is is it reasonable for every one of our members to reach out to you and have a conversation about where you fit into their lives, or are there specific situations where you're more relevant? Um, what makes a what makes it a good time to reach out to Lorraine D'Angelo? So I think they should reach out to me today. <laughs> you know, okay. as soon as they finish listening to this podcast. But <laughs> um, I understand that my services become part of overhead and small businesses are operating on tight budgets and everything. But um, I think it's important that they maybe reach out and do kind of a mini assessment. Maybe they're first getting into a government contract and it's their first time doing it. It might be worthwhile to even just send the contract over and say, hey, what are the top five areas that I should pay attention to here? You know, and if they have process in place for that to determine, you know, what are the areas that the government's looking for? Where can I fall down in? Like getting that information up front would be a good expenditure of a few dollars, right? And then, um, and then maybe engaging further down the line. And I think it really depends on um, how how much they want to pay attention to this because it is they will be more profitable at the end of the day. It is a value add at the end of the day, um, but. It is like when you're looking at hiring a lawyer and an accountant, like all of those, like you need a lot of pieces like right off the bat. So how do you prioritize those things? But it doesn't cost anything to have a conversation. So how would they reach you? What is the best method? So they could reach me by email. Um, my email is really long because I was frankly frustrated when I made it, but it is Lorraine at L dacompliansconsulting.com or um, they could call my cell phone 914-548-6369 or you could look at my website www.ldacompliansconsulting.com Perfect. A lot of that information will be in the write-up about this podcast so they can look there to get those links and Great. find your phone number. Um <laughs> But I'd like to just add a little encouragement here because actually a number I've met a number of the CMC network members, the, the real members, the ones who are building businesses. They're not tiny, right? Some of them are doing three to five million. I know in the scheme of construction, that's small, but their goals are big, much bigger. And the conversations I've had with them after working with Vivian their goals tend to grow even further because she does change their perspective on what's possible and she does show them a path how to get there. And I would recommend having a conversation with Lorraine D'Angelo. Now, while you are growing, you will learn about the challenges you are facing, whether you're aware of them or not, and they will be your processes around them will become part of your culture and you'll grow up complying with them and working well within that system so that it doesn't impede your growth at some point 10 years from now when you are at 30 million and you do get a massive fine. So reach out to Lorraine and have a conversation. This is Michael Obather with Supporting Strategies. Please, if you have questions about the CMC, go to our website, www 
cmcnetwork.co. You can find all the blog posts from all of our professional partners, all the podcasts that we're creating just like this, and you can learn about the work that Vivian is doing with our construction members. It's great to see everybody. I'll see you at the next pod. Thanks, Michael.